Welcome to the Battery Technology Podcast, sponsored by Munters, experts in climate control systems for safe, high-quality battery cell production and R&D, delivering stable, low dew point conditions whilst minimising energy use. Welcome to the Battery Technology Podcast. In this episode, we return to the subject of talent and specifically in a supply constrained market, just how do battery technology companies attract the people they need? And it's a big issue. Just where are the battery technologists and engineers going to come from to populate the battery industry of the future? Now, there's always been a competitive battle in every industry for talent, but this feels different. The quality of the scientific, technical and engineering staff that a business can attract and retain will probably be a significant predictor of long-term success. Last time we heard from Baskvolt about how they are approaching the issue, and this time I'm joined by Richard Taylor and Kurai Abatai of Freier Battery in Norway to discuss how they develop a proactive talent attraction strategy. So I am very pleased indeed to be joined by Richard Taylor, who's the Vice President of Talent Acquisition and Onboarding, and Korai Abatai, who's the Project Director of the Customer Qualification Plan for Freya Battery in, in uh, Norway. I hope I've said that right, but I suspect I probably that was haven't. Beautiful, beautiful, Ken. Well, you're very welcome, and thank you for sparing the time to talk through this. But it might be a good idea just to have initially a kind of brief introduction to Freyr and where you are and where you need to get to and and the steps you're taking along the technology development road. Thanks, Ken. Yes, Kodai and I, we work in Freyr Battery, a nice pronunciation of the Norwegian word. Um, So I stated based in Norway, and... We position ourselves as a um, scaler of other people's technology. So this is um, a lower risk, quicker route to um, hitting the scale required to meet some of the uh, demand that is exploding for batteries. And um, our primary technology partner at the moment is 24M, a Massachusetts-based company. And they have a breakthrough semi-solid technology. And it's breakthrough primarily in production because it um, takes away the need for drying, reduces the production process from 15 to 5 steps. um, And that's brilliant. I mean, perhaps you could add a bit to that, Koray. Yeah, so basically what 24M technologies are providing a, a manufacturing platform where we can add on, develop, based on the customer needs so and also as prayer being a more like a project oriented company we have very strong um, background very strong profiles and experience in the project world and then by using this uh, manufacturing platform we believe that we can promise something to the market based on the market needs so basically our let's say technology development playground i think you could argue that that sounds delicious. And the idea being as well is that you can hit the scale needed. And and the 24M technology already has very strong USBs directed to the stationary storage sector. Uh, so, um, and it, but it is being developed towards automotive. Uh, VW is now a, a co-owner. 
Uh, and uh, we are then taking it to a, a generation two in terms of scale in Korai's qualification plant and uh, intend to, uh, to produce our first battery in Q2 this year. Okay. Um, so what are these plans in terms of capacity, your annual capacity that you've got uh, in your mind in terms of what's that journey looking like over the next few years? Well, the, the target that we have in our heads is 200 gigawatt hours, which is um, enormous. Yeah. Uh, it's difficult for people not in the battery world to understand what a gigawatt hour is. Um, but it, it, it has a gigawatt hour represents something like 80 to 100 million dollars in turnover in sales. So it's, it's, a, yeah. it's big. Um, and we have established uh, offtake agreements for already for 130 of those 200. So it's sort of wow. gone a long way. Again, we have to, there's a lot, long way to go in proving and detailing and, and hitting the, the specs that are in those principal agreements. Uh, we have uh, started building uh, at our site in Muirana, and we have made big announcements about sites in the U.S. near uh, Atlanta in Georgia and in Vasa in, in West Finland. Um, and we've raised a billion dollars so far, which um, sounds like a humongous amount of money, but is um, only, in a way, half a ticket to the, to the party. But uh, it's a good step. Interesting. So clearly there's a huge journey ahead of you. Just to frame it in terms of people, which is obviously the principal part of this conversation. So how many people do you have currently within the Fryer business? And how will that change over that journey? What do you see in terms of headcounts and people in that sense? Well, we're looking at, I mean, we're around um, 225 full-time employees today, and then we've got 100 consultants on top. It's very difficult to, to see where we're going. I mean, we, we think of ourselves in terms of a 10,000-people company in the foreseeable future. So when we rig systems and structures and that kind of a thing, then it's with that in mind. Um, right. And then there'll be many steps along the way. So um, a gigafactory maybe um, within the 24M uh, technology would be around uh, actually 650 people. So that's very low. So it's highly automated. This impacts, of course, the uh, thinking around what kind of people we need. And I notice, of course, that you're English, I think, Richard. Parai, I think you're Turkish. So yeah, yeah. I'm not talking to Norwegians here. So that's an interesting place <laughs> to start. So clearly the business has got a very international flavour to it. I, I would agree. Um, the I think the backbone uh, is, uh, is, is Norwegian, at least for the time being. Um, but like uh, any global business based in any country, it attracts um, foreigners, as it were, like myself and Korai in Norway. Um, but we both speak Norwegian, live here. Um, and I actually became Norwegian last week. So I have dual citizenship. Congratulations. <laughs> Obviously, you find yourselves involved in a, in a technology and in an industry where the demand for talent is enormous and clearly the there are no or there are very few people who have all the skills readily available and if they are they're being chased by everybody um i'm interested in your take on that that the the general uh 
battery technology recruitment uh, issue, but also the specific one to you, because you're based in Norway, and that will have its own positives and challenges. And I'm interested in just talking around that subject for a while in terms of generally, how do you uh, deal with this mismatch in supply and demand? And locally, what kind of, how does that affect you specifically? Well, I mean, you're, of course, right in saying that there are uh, many jobs chasing few people. This will get considerably more pointed as we go forward, uh, because many European projects are very much at the beginning of their uh, lifespan, and so are in the process of scaling up, and their need for people will increase dramatically over the coming years. We don't spend too much time defining how awful the gap is. We just understand that it is uh, challenging and that we need to respond to that. Um, and so my first hire within recruiting was a digital marketer. Uh, and that's interesting in itself because the recruiting industry is going through um, a lot of changes and reliance on uh, sort of almost manual search going down, it's expensive, less effective. And the candidate uh, is um, finding opportunities themselves and is digital. So that's where we had to start. So I think it's first by saying digital first, then we have to do a lot of getting to know people before they then consider us seriously as a company they would like to apply for. So we're doing a lot around, as it were, preparation from our perspective, building a pipeline. But the from the candidate's perspective, it's offering an opportunity to, to get to know us so that yeah. uh, there can be some interaction, much more interaction before an application than is usual. We also have to then look at comparable industries. We can't just look at battery because there's not a lot of it. So we need mm -hmm. to break down our uh, production line into pieces and say, ah, that piece where you mix slurry, is that not pretty much the same as making biscuits? Um, because mm -hmm. they also have a slurry, but made up of different contents. So <laughs> there will be big differences, but also clear similarities. And also we have to come to the conclusion that we have to build an organization in terms of problem solving ability to work it out for ourselves and not mm. import um, necessarily the competence that, you know, predefined as what we need because we won't find it. So we better have people who are smart enough and manage to work together well enough and to be involved enough to make the contribution needed for us to make that progress in efficiency and uh, throughput so that we can turn a profit at the end and that uh, we don't build a machine, we hit, pro hit problems and we're not quick enough at solving them. Karai, you went through that process, didn't you? In the sense of there must have been a point where you were you saw Freyer and thought that's that's an interesting business. That's a business that I see can add, I can add something to, and they can add something to me. And I'm interested as a as a participant in that process, how that worked for you. Yeah, it was a, actually when you say that, I think about it was a very exciting period of my life. Uh, our project has just been closed at Dyson, where I was responsible for the battery module and pack and testing of it. And during the, that phase, I was always 
you, you know, you as you learn, as you build your lab, as you build your battery modules and packs, then you start, okay, what's in it? It's the batteries. And then you start to be interested in how do they actually build it. So then you start to be more curious. So I want, I just want to go deeper into that area. Uh, that, that was a technical part, pure curiosity. How do we actually get those cells built? Because uh, when you want to optimize the system, you could just look at it like in, in a vertical sense. You start let's say, with the, the car. When when you mm-hmm. evaluate the performance of the car, okay, then the, the the powertrain. Okay, in the electric cars, it's the batteries, battery packs, and what's in it, battery modules, and it goes all the way down to the battery cells. And I thought there must be a way to to fully optimize the entire system. And then in order to get there, you need to understand. You actually start optimizing order from the battery cell level. So that was yeah. the thing that attracted my uh, the technical part of it. For the private part and social life, I, I, I've always been a fan of the Scandinavian lifestyle and the work-life balance and the nature and everything after living in Sweden. And I moved to England, not to be rude about the British people here, to be honest. Careful, but... careful. <laughs> You're outnumbered. <laughs> and then I thought, okay, back to Scandinavia, work-life balance. Plus, I like the Scandinavian way of handling problems this collaborative approach, this human connection, basically, during the do, doing the work. Because as you have pointed out earlier, it's population is scarce here, so you need to get the best out of who you have, basically. And you, it, it pushes people to create another type of dynamic. So you, you bond your colleagues in a different way, and then you attack the problems. I've always been attracted by that. So going back to Scandinavia for me was also quite attractive, and I made the decision. Uh, plus, Freyer is a startup and quite bold in Norway. We want to do that. That's the challenge that I would like to take. So mm. um, after engagement with Richard and uh, and Tom, that, 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 there was no doubt that I want to go there and do this. Right. So when you talk about bold, are you talking here about ambitious in the sense of there's a very, very clear idea in terms of what, what the de- deliverable is and an ambition to get that delivered? Yeah, absolutely. So obviously, when you look at the battery market, the Asians are basically the main producers of the batteries in the world. So the question is, uh, what can we do in Scandinavia? What can we do in Europe? And then taking that step. So obviously, all these big companies, they have been doing something and uh, improving it over time, like continuous improvement, I think, from the 80s. And then there's always predecessors to that one as well. The question is, with this, the innovative approach from Scandinavia, how, what will be our take on this one? That, that's to just jump into an area where there are like big companies already making like millions of dollars of sales, maybe billions of dollars of sales. What can we do? What can we disrupt? Plus, on, on the backbone, obviously, in Norway, we have this environmental-friendly, sustainable green batteries. So that, that, those two basic ambitions attracted me as well. So being this slightly, let's say, the underdog approach to this one uh, in this part of the world, it's just, uh, I, you, you could not say so. No, it's just being curious. You get there, do your best and uh, get the cells out, I think. And so far, I'm quite happy with that decision, if I'm honest. So. Well, that's a, that's a brilliant uh, explanation as to as to what attracted you to, to the business. One of the things, clearly, that this industry has a, is not like any other industries. And, and the, the processes from a recruitment, a talent attraction and a talent retention perspective that worked back 10 years ago in the automotive or aerospace industries aren't going to work anymore. You know, this, this idea of 
post and pray and that kind of thing in terms of putting jobs out there is just not going to work. And I'm interested in your approach to that in the sense of clearly you're placing a great deal emphasis of emphasis on pipeline. And that, I guess, means you have to start thinking about how we portray our business, what's the character of our business, what is our, what are our USPs, and how do we how do we engage with people at an early stage in their thinking about their careers? So I'm interested in, in terms of talking about your approach to pipeline and how how what that means for Friar. Um, I referred to pipeline a little earlier, and it's really very standard digital marketing funnel thinking from our perspective. We have something we want to sell you, and that is a job opportunity. And we have then to think in terms of you've never heard of us. Uh, you may not have considered our kind of a company or a job opportunity with us as something relevant for you. So we have to start very much at the top of the funnel, quite classically, put out information that people find of personal interest around the battery industry or technology or the energy transition or this kind of a stuff, um, but that relates back to Freyr as an example of a company that is on the pathway to make a powerful contribution to the energy transition. So we're imagining that a lot of often technical people are thinking more about the meaning in what they do um, and how they can latch onto uh, a project that's moving uh, and that um, is set to make the kind of contribution they'd like to be a part of. So it's then a matter of saying, okay, you've got an initial interest, heard of Freyed, maybe you're in the battery industry and maybe you're not, maybe you're in an industry, you're in the car industry or uh, you're in uh, yeah, making car parts, whatever it may be. You get to understand Freyed as an example of the kind of a company that you might consider as your next career move. And you just move through this funnel of hearing about our technology, uh, what the plant might look like, what life might look like at one of our sites. Um, and at the same time, we ask you, do you have what it takes? Because that's not irrelevant. And when somebody's thinking about their career um, and they're thinking, well, maybe I could do this and maybe I could do that, then the question is, do I have what it takes? Will I also be attractive? I may want it, but will they want me? So we then offer people the opportunity to map um, the their competence and be given feedback in terms of whether that is attractive for us as an example of the kind of company that they may want to, to, to have a look at. We're also then looking at, we haven't decided whether to do it, putting out, a, so what are your values? Does that fit uh, the direction we're going in? Not only who we want to be as a, as a sort of an industrial company, but also in terms of what we're trying to achieve. And we're also looking for strong problem solvers. As I said, we have to work it out for ourselves. We can't rely on importing the competence. So we therefore need to try and identify the people who are most likely to solve problems the most quickly. So we also have to then uh, offer the opportunity to take cognitive tests to sort of so people can take a sort of um, calibrate themselves. You get to know us. We get to know you, and this goes over a period of time. And then 
we're kind of thinking people need to sit back and think about it because this may also include moving because we have um, an out-of-the-way location, as it were. And when I say out-of-the-way, then it's somewhere with a small population in itself. So we have to expect a lot of people to need to move. That's a big decision. So then there's a time for maturation, talk in the family, talk to one's friends to see whether or not this is a concrete thing you'd like to do. And then there's a job opportunity uh, presented to you that you can then apply for and um, go through a standard process. That is a far more sophisticated and advanced approach to talent acquisition than was necessary in the past, where it really was almost a numbers game, uh, for, particularly for organisations who are looking to grow quickly. But that just, as we said earlier, that just isn't going to work. And it sounds like there's, in terms of the assessment process that you go through with potential candidates, let's say, that is much more emphasised on transferability of skills, of thinking, of, of problem-solving skills, of thinking prowess, than it is you have the skills already that we need, because very few people do. Essentially, it sounds like you're much more emphasising how this person can develop to meet our needs rather than has those skills today. But you, you're, I think you're overstating the has, uh, doesn't have those skills today piece because we do feel that um, a lot of what people do in production is highly relevant to what we do. And it, it's not just systems, it. whether it be sort of black belts of this or green belts of that, but it's also actual technology. And yeah. it, it could be machine building. Um, it can be automation, vision systems. There's there's a load of stuff that is is directly relevant. But we just have to be less uh, i suppose specific if you haven't done that then we're not uh, worth you know, we're not going to talk to you we need we need to we need to think more about what is relevant uh, like my background is obviously manufacturing engineering and i have been focusing on basically any technology from the lab scale and scaling it up to the mass production that's what i've been um, trying to do and i enjoy it a lot so in this case what we do is the first thing that you look at okay how many applications do we have in this process. So you, you, as a manufacturing engineer, I tend to focus on the applications. When we say applications, it could be vision systems, it could be ultrasonic welding, it could be laser systems, it could be precision material handling. And, and the interesting thing about, which also attracted me for the battery build, is it starts with a batch production powder type of production, which is very, very high level description of it. Then it turns out to be some kind of a, yeah, let's say slurry. And then rather quickly, it becomes discrete manufacturing and precision assembly. And towards the end of the process, it becomes basically an electric testing. So, so in order to do them in a, in a mass production, you have a long list of applications. Actually, I, I, I kind of find it a little bit deceiving to also refer to the battery skills or referring to or appealing to some kind of production skill type of thing. But when you break it down to applications, and then when you when you speak to the candidates, so what have you done previously, um, or what attracts you, what did you enjoy mostly? I'm sure, I think we have a higher possible to find the right match in terms of applications, because you have a long list of applications you can match. That's really interesting. On top of that, the learning skills, of course, we are not hiring people just to, if somebody's an ultrasonic welder, just come on in, so you'll just do ultrasonic. So then it comes, to, okay, what other applications do you want to learn? 
And that's where this learning capability and understanding uh, and as a genuine interest and curiosity plays a big role. That's actually what we try to understand during the interviews. So what do you want to learn and what have you done? You're, you're, you're getting us going here, yeah. Ken, because the, we're, we're very enthusiastic. <laughs> but the, I mean, the key here is to, uh, we, we feel that we have a, a very, as it were, modern uh, plant design where we are closer than many to the idea of it being, um, you're actually, work, it's, it's a computer. So the, um, it's not, but I mean, that, that yeah. metaphor. So um, we need people, the data analyst piece is, is incredibly important. But also because you reach this level of automation, then with few people and a lot of applications, the word Corey was using, then you need each person to understand more than one and preferably as many as possible. Mm -hmm. So you're looking for this breadth and you're creating learning pathways that do provide uh, this sort of broadening out of people's understanding of uh, of different applications within the production process. So that's why you talked it about problem solving prowess, uh, that that becomes increasingly important. Yeah. What's very interesting about that is your ability to deconstruct the production process into actual almost mini processes. And then you can say, actually, these mini processes match up with completely different industries. And if we match these completely different industries to these mini processes, we've got a great opportunity to find in people who, who recognize our problems in that mini process. That's really interesting thinking, if I might say. Just to touch on something else before we move on to another subject, which I know I'm very interested to talk about, is you mentioned right at the outset, Richard, that your first hire was someone within uh, social marketing, effectively. Now you've got quite a broad potential pipeline of, of relevant people. How do you actually reach them, though? People get so bombarded by so many messages these days. How do you cut through that and, and, and actually connect with the people you seek to connect with? Uh, the, the, there's two acts or two perspectives on this. One is, technically speaking, you'd call it target data. So that means understanding titles, companies, and locations, so that your media spend. So you you create a campaign and you need to put it under the nose of literally uh, the relevant people. Then you need to have a good definition of who those people are and to manage nice. your digital marketing well. But of course, then you need. A message and you need that stop effect and you need uh, to be differentiated and a, a lot of that is i suppose a, a creative marketing process to try and find something that will break through the as you call it this sort of this, this the noise but it's also integrity so what you put out there has to be in line with who you are so that it it, it has some level of realness and I think we've got quite a few things to play on, and we've discussed many of them so far. Yeah. And you were also talking about uh, Norway, the pluses and the minuses. Um, I think one of the, um, and, and this is like um, the fish who do not see the water they swim in. Norwegians don't understand the benefits that a Turk or a Brit might see in their society. And, an interesting example, when you ask, do you in general trust other people? then um, Norway is the country that by far has the highest number of people saying yes. So even in Scandinavia, there are differences where 54% uh, of Danes say yes, 63 or whatever it is of Swedes say yes. 
and 74% of Norwegians. And this is an expression of so many things around equality, inclusion, uh, truth speaking, openness, and all these things um, that provides, I think, a very enticing way of life or, or, or place to live or way of, way of living. One of the things I know that you've done a lot of work on is the motivational factors that affect people's decisions to move and people's decisions about their own career aspirations. I'd like to talk a little bit more about that. Kind of, Richard, if you don't mind, just kind of a, an idea of how you approach that subject. Absolutely. To begin with, in, if we talk about our factory in Moirana in Norway, we have been thinking that it's a big advantage to actually have experience of how manufacturing is done in Norway. Because as I was saying, there's something special about Norwegian culture. Our primary target group is uh, people who, with experience of a Norwegian or Scandinavian manufacturing background. Beyond that, we've done quite a lot of work to try and identify um, where else we should be looking. We, we came to the obvious answer, and we're looking primarily in Germany, in the UK, and in Poland. Then we were thinking, so who, or what kind of people are we looking at? Not just what have they done and how smart they are, but also what drives them, what are they interested in, and this kind of stuff. And we heard Corey Cor talking earlier about um, what attracted him, uh, which was work-life balance, nature, the way things are done around here. But we set up a, a framework of motivators and spoke to focus groups about it. From a purely Norwegian perspective, we discovered that we couldn't have too much BS on sustainability uh, because everybody's sustainable now. Yeah. Is, is, is hard to differentiate. Mm. You need to be much more concrete and you need to uh, demonstrate that anybody joining would be a real part of what's going on, not just some sort of a satellite. And you needed to provide a, a good level of flexibility. And this was slightly different for uh, the Germans we spoke with, uh, who had a stronger uh, focus on meaning, a stronger focus on quality of life. Uh, yeah. amenities and work-life balance. And both of these things, I think, our Norwegian target would take as a matter of course. They take it for granted. When we say meaning, that's an interesting word. What we're doing has a useful purpose in life or yes. meaning in the sense of we see clearly how we fit into that. Well, it's a bit of both. I mean, the um, okay. uh, but, but, but primarily that what we're doing uh, provides value to uh, our mankind, humankind. Yeah, I, I can maybe add on that one. So it's very interesting to interview people coming from oil and gas business to, to batteries. Then how they describe what they have been doing. Of, and it's it's not only the, the technical part of it, obviously. It's about uh, related to the, so what will we do about the future of this planet? It's very interesting to hear uh, each and everybody's uh, especially from oil and gas business, how do they formulate why they want to change their industry that they have been working on spend some time with them and especially after a couple of months maybe a couple of years later one or two years later still with us and see that it's still there and then they, they they continue towards this meaning it's just uh, interesting so there's a, there's part of their motivation is i feel more comfortable working in in an organization 
which is contributing to a positive change. Correct. One of the things that I'm interested in must you must face is, is this issue of movability and and if someone's going to move to Norway, they've got to they've got to need to feel that they can put some roots down. Not going to be a job that's going to be here today, gone tomorrow. There's kind of almost a contract, a psychological contract that that people know that they're investing in their future for the long term in order to make that change. Have, have I got that right, or am I? No, you're you're right. I mean, in terms of movability, then clearly that uh, we can see clearly that it's the age group under 35s that find that easiest. It's not school age, it's not taken on a mortgage yet. There's less likelihood of that sort of deep established uh, platform where they're living. So it's easier to move. So our demographic is 35 and under primarily. In terms of what you're saying is sort of permanent or, or sort of secure enough. Uh, I mean, people are thinking about two to three years uh, because they, you know, it's difficult for any human to think longer than that. Yes, they, they need to see that Freya is solid, uh, yeah. which we are solid. Uh, and uh, then it's it's more a sort of j just enough to feel secure enough and then off we go. Because I think people are now more confident in their own employability and it's more a focus on employability than job security and the battery industry i think is a fantastic bet when i've spoken yeah. to many engineers in different industries they talk about the business cycles out of a job restructuring here restructuring mm -hmm. there we see the turn the downturn in a number of industries whereas the battery industry does face I mean, it's like a beanstalk that has uh, there's, it's going to grow forever kind of a thing. And so as an employability factor, then experience in the battery industry is a powerful magnet. And that, I think, uh, is very helpful. Yeah, that makes sense. And just uh, alluding to uh, what Karai was saying about the oil and gas industry, that is you know, often very cyclical. So, you know, when the when the oil price is at $120 a barrel, everything's great. When it's at $20 a barrel, things ain't so great. Your industry you know, clearly isn't as cyclical as that. It's on a completely different trajectory in terms of its outlook. Well, the demand um, curves are very, very steep and, um, yeah. and they get steeper for every day. One of the things that I'm interested in is how, how higher education is keeping pace with this industry because i i talk to a lot of people in the industry and, I, and I, I get a sense that it isn't and i don't know whether that's just a normal part of any industrial revolution that higher education takes a couple of years just to make sure it's got it's got courses and skills development uh mechanisms to match your demands what's you're at the sharp end of this and what's what's your thoughts on that subject well our feeling is that there's enormous interest and drive in um developing uh new courses we opened just two weeks ago what we call the sort of i'm not quite sure how we translate it but the buttery fog school which is kind of like a, a higher national diploma it's 60 credits worked over a two-year period, and that was opened in Moirana. And we are developing then a, a seven-and-a-half-credit course at master's level and another 10-credit conversion course for machine engineers, 
and also developing pathways so that you can move from apprenticeship through higher national diploma, through bachelor's and through master's over uh, a period of uh, years, even decades. So we meet enormous interests from the government and from universities um, and uh, higher national diploma suppliers all over the place. We, 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 we don't see that, at least from a Norwegian perspective. That's interesting and great to hear, actually. The, the higher education, I, I think it's an interesting topic. <laughs> I think we can talk more about that. I just want to add something. Yeah. As we speak about these things, I'm reflecting back to the level of conversations that I have engaged with our current employees and my project team. And, and I'm thinking the, the level of conversation is different when I speak to a colleague of mine who has been in a laboratory and it could be like a workshop that did something with his or her hands, uh, has seen the results. That, that type of conversation is extremely valuable and it's very interesting. Of course, then at different phases of different projects and even different applications, the higher education and also analysis of data and drawing conclusions, seeing the patterns, clusters, etc. And that's obviously needed as well. But I'm, I'm extremely, uh, I'll say, amazed by uh, the, the very, very variety of uh, uh, conversations that I engage with and the level of questions. And any of those questions May or may may end up in something that you need to reconsider your approach and change it. So I, I find both areas quite valuable. But, but primarily, you're also saying that practical experience makes all the difference. Combined with some kind of an innovative approach. I mean, you shouldn't be there just to sit down and do something in a workshop because somebody asked you to do that. But it should be driven by some kind of a curiosity and a question yeah. in mind, and maybe developing more questions. So, but doing something by hands and seeing the result the day after, couldn't sleep two days because you didn't see the test results yet. It's, it's, it's just, uh, yeah, re really gets me excited when I engage such conversations with the people, yeah, our colleagues, basically. I mean, this has been an absolutely fascinating insight into how you guys at Friars are coping with this you know, difficult challenge. How are you optimistic looking forward to the, you've got a big challenge ahead of you guys. I mean, it's not going to get any easier, is it? I mean, you, there'll be a few more lines on that forehead, I imagine, by 2030, Richard, uh, than the very few there are now. But, I'm jealous. I, mean, <laughs> I am jealous. Do you think actually, as you look ahead in terms of the way you've got things structured, there will be difficulties, but generally we're heading in the right direction to fulfil your needs, really? I am absolutely optimistic. Uh, our approach, what we meet of interest and support, uh, tells me that from a Freier perspective, then uh, we will be able to maintain the kind of progress that we've been thinking about. The issue, of course, is, to, is, is whether that's quick enough. There's, there's so many pieces that need to come into place and everything is against the uh, sustainability clock that we're up against. Um, that, that's, that's a much tougher challenge than um, whether or not we can get graduates. That makes sense. I'm really optimistic. I have to emphasize that because I have a picture of, of, a, um, of, a, of the whiteboard from one of our first offices. It's dated to 8th of September 2020. And basically, this is a rectangle-shaped box 
and it says customer qualification plant on it. And uh, we even describe a uh, new product introduction group and then testing facility, test center. Then we are going to grow like this. And then, then new products will be introduced here. Then we transfer to Gigafactories, all these ideas. It's dated 8th of September, 2020. And now in Muirana, I'm walking in that facility. And this has all happened during the pandemic and the uh, chip shortage and wars. And you could imagine, all, I'm sure everybody's aware of the situation in the world now. So... We handled a lot of problems. We solved a lot of problems. Now we are here, and that gives us the power to to be and also motivation to be positive and optimistic for the future. So I, I look at that picture uh, from time to time, and I show it to my colleagues as well. Uh, it's just a journey. Optimism it's a journey and an inspiration, I guess, because you can Absolutely. see you can see the start of the journey, and you can see where you are along that path. Absolutely. Brilliant. Well, look, I'm so grateful that you've taken the trouble and the time to spend with me just talking this issue through. It's a fascinating issue. It's a big issue facing the industry, of course, but your insights have been really useful. So Richard, Karai, I'm very, very grateful for your time. Thank you. Thanks very much. The Battery Technology Podcast is a copyrighted 2030 Net Zero Limited production. For more details of how to reach us, You'll find our contact details in the show notes or at our website, www.batterytechnologypodcast.com.